0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 62. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on March 2nd, Texas Independence Day, 2022 in Austin, Texas. Unfortunately, this episode takes place a long way from Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. I remain very stressed out over Russia's war on Ukraine. Regular listeners know that I have taught week-long courses at the business school at Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. It would be too much to say that I have close friends there, but I can picture our students. Remember the beers and the laughter we shared, and I'm actually very worried for them. They are victims of resurgent fascism in Europe, and make no mistake, that is what Vladimir Putin's neo-Soviet project is. Don't worry, I'm not going to dwell on Ukraine at great length. We'll get to Samuel de Champlain's minimalist invasion of New York in 1609 in just a moment. Before I do that, though, I'm going to read the American Historical Association's statement on Ukraine, which talks about weaponizing history to justify war. Quote, The American Historical Association condemns in the strongest possible terms Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine. This act of overt military aggression violates the sovereignty of an independent Ukraine, threatening stability in the broader region and across the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin's rhetorical premise for this brutal violation of Ukraine's sovereignty is anchored by a set of outlandish historical claims, including an argument that Ukraine was entirely a Soviet creation. In fact, Ukraine's distinct language and culture date back over many centuries. Ukraine has been a crossroads of the region, connected to countries and cultures to the west, as well as Russia to its east. Over time, Ukrainians have contested both Russification and Sovietization. President Putin grossly simplifies and distorts Ukraine's history, essentially erasing its distinct past and rendering it indistinguishable from Russia. The AHA emphatically imposes this unprovoked act of military aggression. That the war is based on such a distorted and tendentious misreading of history makes it all the more deplorable. We vigorously support the Ukrainian nation and its people in their resistance to Russian military aggression and the twisted mythology that President Putin has invented to justify his violation of international norms. My naturally mordant humor chuckles at the idea that Putin's war is all the more deplorable because it is based on a tendentious misreading of history. That might be my 94th problem with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That little bit of overreach aside, the AHA has a point. The weaponization of history is about a lot more than teaching American triumphalism, or CRT, to 7th graders. The worst of wars have been fought over grossly distorted national myths. Unfortunately, I doubt that the powers that be in the American Historical Association appreciate that even seemingly benign uses of history to win contemporary political arguments legitimize the abuse of history by bad people, too. It would be so much better if we all agreed to do our best to keep history and politics in their respective corners, whether we are the New York Times or Vladimir Putin. And no, I did not just compare the Times to Putin, so cool your jets. My point of view is extremely unpopular in academic circles, and I hold out little hope that will change soon. But if enough young people listen to this podcast and others like it, Maybe it will change eventually. Anyway, enough heavy stuff and back to Samuel de Champlain. In last week's episode, Champlain came to today's United States for the first time, established a settlement on St. Croix Island, which sits in today's Maine, and traveled on three voyages of exploration along the coast of New England. The third voyage, under the command of the Seul de Poutrincourt in 1606, repeatedly provoked hostility from the local Indians and clarified for the French that they would not settle the North American coast south of New Brunswick. It simply was too crowded, and the locals were too experienced in dealing with Europeans. It would only become less crowded after a lethal pandemic swept through the region around a decade later which would depopulate it to such a great extent that the local tribes would be in no practical position to oppose the pilgrims when they arrived at Plymouth, 1620. Meanwhile, in 1605, having survived the harsh winter in the middle of the St. Croix River, Champlain and the Sieur de mont had relocated their settlement to Port Royal, in today's Nova Scotia, in a harbor in the Bay of Fundy at roughly the latitude of Bangor, Maine, Port Royal would be the point of embarkation for the coastal expeditions of 1605 and 1606 and succeed on its own, having established excellent relations with a local tribe, the Mi'kmaq. It would wrap up in 1607 because of disruption in its base of investors and inability to control its monopoly in the fur trade rather than as a result of its failure per se. On orders, Champlain closed up Port Royal and headed back to France in the fall of 1607, just as the Virginia Company would be setting up the popham Sagadahoc colony, almost exactly 100 miles to the southwest. On his return to France, he went to work with the Sir de Mont to raise money and secure authorization for a new settlement. The question was where. Champlain, who was now mission commander, marshaled his case for the St. Lawrence River, and the Sir de Mont argued for Acadia. In the event they struck a compromise, they would fund two settlements, two ships up the St. Lawrence and a third to Acadia. Champlain's orders in his capacity as lieutenant for the country of New France were to negotiate a treaty of amity with the Indian nations to plant a permanent settlement and to lay the foundation of a permanent edifice for the glory of God and the renown of the French people. The French were coming back to stay. The three chartered ships would sail from France in early 1608. Their three captains were Guillaume Le Testu, Champlain's old boss, Pont Gravet, and the third ship, which was to sail for Port Royal and resettle Acadia, was commanded by the shipwright Chanderet, another old friend of Champlain. In early June 1608... Champlain, Le Testu, and Pont-Gravé reached Tadoussac, the harbor at the mouth of the Saguenay River, where Champlain and Pontgrave had first landed in 1603. There they would reestablish relations with the Montagnais Indians, known today as the Innu, with whom they had feasted five years before. Chantre, meanwhile, found Port Royal intact, it having been. Carefully preserved by the local Mi'kmaq tribe. He settled in and then traveled down the coast of Maine and landed at Mount Desert Island, somewhere near Bar Harbor, and established productive trading relationships with a chief who, like so many people down through the centuries, summered there. Back on the St. Lawrence, Champlain and Pontgrevet headed upriver to Quebec, which attentive listeners will recall as Algonquin for a narrowing in a river. There they set to work building their settlement. They cleared a big stand of trees, built numerous buildings, a palisade, and planted fields and gardens. With a Canadian winter coming, they were in a race against time, the severity of which Champlain well knew, even if most of the French did not. He drove them very hard, to the point that a A group of malcontents conspired to assassinate him and install a less demanding leader. Through a bit of luck and sound judgment, the plotters were exposed. Champlain convened a tribunal which convicted the four ringleaders and ordered the execution of the least redeemable among them. Champlain had his head mounted on a pike as a warning. There was no more trouble. So perhaps the violent suppression of dissent or the maintaining of good public order, depending on your point of view, is a more long-standing tradition in Canada than we realize. Unbeknownst to them, Champlain and Pancrevet had landed in the middle of a war that had been intensified by a change in the style of the hats on the fashionable heads in Paris— You think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. Feathers were out and beaver fur was in. And that had massively increased the importance of the fur trade between Europeans and the Algonquin tribes along with St. Lawrence. You will recall that the Montagnier, Algonquin, and other middlemen tribes were very careful to control access to the northern tribes which supplied them the furs. They didn't want the French or other Europeans to get to know them. Well, the increasing value of the fur trade meant that it was an increasingly valuable target to attack. Their generations-long war with the Iroquois, especially the Mohawk of upstate New York, had been intensifying. As friendly tribes visited Quebec and met with Champlain, the French began to understand the political contours of the area in which they had settled down. Now let's go to David Hackett Fisher's account. Champlain welcomed them all to Quebec and gave them a kind reception in the words of one Algonquin Sagamore. They began to build alliances, French and Indians together, but with different purposes in mind. The Montagnier and Algonquins wanted Champlain to join them in defeating their mortal foes, the Mohawk. The French commander agreed and said that he wished to help them against their enemies, but with a different purpose in mind. His object was to bring peace to the St. Lawrence Valley. He hoped to break the cycle by striking forcefully against the Iroquois, whom he regarded as the aggressors. The plan was not to destroy their power. It was to raise the price of raiding the St. Lawrence Valley. During the summer and fall of 1608, they made an alliance with different goals in mind. It was a fateful agreement. By late fall, Pongravet and most of the men went home, leaving Champlain and a small complement at Quebec. The winter of 1608-1609 would brutalize Frenchmen and Indian alike, The Montagnier were hunters and gatherers and followed an established pattern of migration to food sources in the region. Sometimes their hunts would fail because of weather, or maybe because of changing patterns in the migration of their prey. During that winter, the local Montagnier almost starved to death. A band of them, reduced to skin and bones, risked their lives to cross the river to the small settlement at Quebec. Their Champlain shared the French supplies and helped them build shelters against the terrible cold. That was a terrible winter for the French, too. Scurvy and dysentery set in and they began to die at Jamestown-like rates. By the spring thaw that brought the first great spawning runs on the river, only eight of the 28 settlers who had stayed at Quebec were alive. But there they were. And the settlement at Quebec had, at least in theory, survived. In June 1609, Pancrevet arrived with very welcome supplies, a small detachment of new settlers and some very unwelcome news from the Sieur de mont Champlain was to be relieved of command at the end of the summer. Pancrevet would spend the summer downriver at Tattersac and then come up to Quebec in the fall when Champlain would return to France. These orders came without explanation. Had Monts lost confidence in him? Or did he simply mean to rotate his leaders and give Champlain well-to-serve respite in France? In Fisher's reckoning, other leaders would have been shattered by the news. Well, except for John Smith, who used every moment of his command productively, even after he was fired, too. Champlain also went to work, using the last few months of his command to put into effect his plan to end the Indian Wars along the St. Lawrence. Now let's go to Fisher, quote, Champlain proposed to deal with the problem in several ways. He believed that a major cause of war was fear, and his remedy was to seek peace through diplomacy. To that end, he built alliances among the Montagnier, Algonquin, and Huron, and other nations in Acadia and Nurembega. But a major problem remained with the Iroquois League, the Mohawk in particular. One historian of the Iroquois observes that by the start of the 17th century, they were at odds with all their neighbors. Algonquin and Huron to the north, Mohican on the east, and Susquehannock to the south. Many Indian nations in the northeast were at war with some of their neighbors. The Iroquois were at war with nearly all of theirs, They had a reputation for skill in war among many warrior nations, and they were also known for cruelty in a very cruel world. In 1608, Champlain had promised to aid the Indian nations of the St. Lawrence Valley when they were attacked by the Iroquois. At the same time, he was aware that the Iroquois were victims as well as aggressors, and he sent peace-feelers to them through a captive woman of the Mohawk nation whom he had protected in Quebec with that purpose in mind. These overtures went nowhere. Mohawk war parties continued to attack the St. Lawrence Indians. By the spring of 1609, Champlain had come to the conclusion that peace could be achieved only by concerted military action against the Mohawk. He did not intend a war of conquest. Rather, he was thinking of One or two sharp blows by a coalition of Montagnier, Algonquin, and Huron with French support. The object was to deter Mohawk attacks by raising the cost of raiding to the north. and that way, Champlain hoped to break the cycle of violence and bring peace to the Great Valley. At the same time, Champlain also hoped to expand trading relations with many Indian nations, not primarily for trade itself, but for a larger purpose. He thought of trade as an instrument of peace. American Indians also shared that belief. Ethnographer Bruce Trigger writes that, in historical terms, all neighboring tribes either were at war or traded with one another. Historian William Fenton quotes an Indian who said, trade and peace we take to be the same thing. Back to me. Trade as an instrument of peace, which is a topic being much debated in the confused geopolitical context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is a much older idea than many people today might appreciate. Like many ideas, it probably works some of the time, even as we witness an all-out war between countries that both have McDonald's. And if you don't follow that reference, Google Tom Friedman, McDonald's, and war. Champlain met with Pancrevet on June 7, 1609, at Tadasac, and they agreed on a plan. Champlain would take a shallop and 20 men and go recruit Indian allies for a preemptive attack on the Mohawk. By June 18th, Champlain was sailing back upstream, meeting with local chiefs along the way. 30 miles upstream from Quebec, he met with a gathering of several hundred Algonquins and Hurons and two leading chiefs, Iroquois and Ocasteguin. Champlain presented his proposal to the two chiefs. They liked the plan, but needed to do their own due diligence on Champlain. Back to Fisher, quote, The Indians wanted very much to observe Champlain himself and judge the strength of his vital spirit, which the Huron called Orenda. They believed that all natural things had Orenda in different degrees. It was a form of spiritual power that could be used for good and evil. Good hunters had strong Orenda, more so than the animals they killed. Great warriors had very strong Orenda. An important question for Iroquette, and Ocastegwin was about the quality of Champlain's Orenda. Was it strong? Was it good? The chiefs made a surprising request. They asked Champlain to order the firing of arquebuses. It was done, and the Indians responded with loud shouts of astonishment. One ethno-historian has written of the Indian belief that Orenda can reside in an object, and clearly guns had power. After the firing of the weapons, Champlain made a speech urging the Indians to observe that he and his companions came as warriors, not traders. They brought weapons, not trade goods. With a broad gesture of hospitality, he invited all the Indians to visit Quebec as his guest. It was an act of extravagant generosity and a splendid display of oranda. Back to me, Champlain sent a message to Pancrevet asking that he come to Quebec with as many men and as much food as could be spared. There the French, dressed in gleaming half-armor and sporting their panaches, feted several hundred Indians for five days of feasting and ritual dancing, the alliance thusly solidified— On June 28, the French shallops and a vast fleet of canoes headed upriver to the River of the Iroquois, today's Richelieu River, the gateway to the Mohawk country to the south. Now would be a good time to pop open a map app if you have one available to you, and you're not driving or frying a turkey or playing mumbly peg. The canoe fleet then headed up the Richelieu until it encountered rapids that the shallops could not navigate. Most of the French did not want to transfer to the Indian canoes. It's not clear whether this was because they did not trust the Indians, or they did not trust the canoes. But Champlain and two stalwart volunteers continued on. Some of the Indians turned back when most of the French did. It was now three Frenchmen and around 60 remaining Indians to launch an attack on the most fearsome warriors then known in North America. On July 14th, which one day would be celebrated in all the French-speaking world for an entirely different reason, the fleet entered a vast lake. The three Frenchmen were in all likelihood the first Europeans to see Lake Champlain, and they were stunned by its size and beauty. It was the full moon and they were in Mohawk country now. So they slowed their advance to a crawl, waiting for the waning, as it were. That gave Champlain opportunity to explore both shores and record his findings. These French were almost certainly the first Europeans to set foot in today's Vermont. Champlain saw the Green Mountains to the east and the Adirondacks to the west. He cataloged the wildlife he saw, including a vast abundance of Game stags, fallow deer, fawns, roebuck, bears, and other animals. There is, unfortunately, no record that he came across any craft breweries or artisanal ice cream shops. By July 26, the moon was reduced to a small crescent and the nights were dark again. The expedition traveled only at night, and as the sky lightened, they went ashore and hid their canoes. They ate without fire. After sleeping, the Indians spent their days in the woods planning their attack by drawing diagrams in the dirt with sticks and then rehearsed as veteran soldiers would do. Champlain wrote, They arranged themselves in the order which they had seen these sticks. Then they mixed themselves up and again put themselves in proper order, repeating this two or three times and go back to camp without any need of a sergeant to make them keep their ranks which they are quite able to maintain without getting into confusion, such as the method they observe on the warpath. I am myself only beginning to learn about Indian warfare before the arrival of Europeans and may eventually do an episode on the subject, at some risk of contradiction because I am not myself yet well-read on the topic. It seems that Indians fought in formation with closed ranks before the arrival of Europeans with their armor and firepower. The popular perception of Indians waging guerrilla war actually reflects their adaptation to the early encounters with European weapons and tactics. One day, now well down the eastern shore, Champlain awoke from a dream. The Indians asked him about it, and he told them, I dreamed that I saw in the lake near a mountain, our enemies, the Iroquois, drowning before our eyes. I wanted to rescue them, but our Indian allies told me that we should let them all die, for they were worth nothing. The Indians recognized the place described by Champlain as lying just ahead, and they were much relieved. And their culture dreams not only revealed the future, but they could control it. In Champlain's account, they moved forward in a new spirit, Of course, we cannot know that Champlain actually had this dream. He may well have done, and been fortunate in the interpretation of it. Or he may have learned enough about Indian culture and warrior psychology that he fabricated it. Fisher takes the episode at face value, but I have to say, I wonder about it. It is now July 29th, 1609. John Smith in Jamestown has just learned from Samuel Argyle that he will be relieved of command when the third supply arrives later that summer. What neither of them knew, however, was that only two days before, on July 27th, a hurricane had dispersed the third supply fleet and its flagship, which carried the document with the orders removing Smith, had been cast away on Bermuda. Smith, who had learned he would be relieved of command a few weeks after Champlain learned he had been recalled, reacted much the same way, by using his remaining time to explore the region and engage with the Indians his way. Meanwhile, Henry Hudson, who had tried to find a northeastern passage over Russia, had turned around and to the dismay of his crew sailed for New York, where he would sail up the river that today bears his name. Not far away, only five weeks hence. And Samuel de Champlain, two French volunteers and 60 Algonquin and Huron Indians were about to fight an epic battle with a Mohawk. The summer of 1609, not to be confused with the summer of 69, had a lot going on. The Indians paddled silently down the lake. Champlain was astonished at their stealth. In the distance, in the starlight, he saw the mountain of his dream. That's his story, so notwithstanding our doubts, we are sticking with it. His Indian allies knew it well. In Iroquoian, it who is called the meeting place of two waters, Ticonderoga. today known to us as Ticonderoga, New York. Now let's go back to Fisher. Quote, As they rounded the promontory of Ticonderoga, their bow paddlers saw shadows stirring on the water ahead of them. They stared intently into the darkness, and the shadows began to assume an earthly form. They were boats of strange appearance, larger than northern birch bark canoes and filled with men. The Indians instantly identified them. Mohawk. Each group sighted the other at about the same time, and both were taken by surprise, At the extremity of the Cape, Champlain wrote, we met the Iroquois. Both they and we commenced to make loud cries, and each warrior made ready his arms. Both sides turned away and moved in opposite directions. We retreated into the middle of the lake, Champlain wrote. The northern Indians had an advantage on the water. Their birch bark canoes were nimble and very fast. The mohawk boats were made of thick elm bark, often from a single tree. They were big and strong, but slow and clumsy. The Montagnier, Algonquin, and Huron could control the terms of the engagement on the lake. Back to me, the Mohawk made for the shore and unloaded on clear ground at the edge of the forest. They quickly cut down trees and built a makeshift fort or barricade. The northern Indians called to the Mohawk and negotiated the terms of combat over the water to learn from the enemy if they wished to fight, Champlain's words. The Mohawk replied that they had no other desire, but were concerned that it would be difficult to distinguish friend and foe at night. It was agreed that battle would begin at sunrise. The Mohawk yelled out parting insults, to which Champlain wrote, our side was not lacking in repartee. It all makes me wonder what the Algonquin for your mother is. The French and their Indian allies quietly paddled around the point under cover of darkness and came ashore out of sight of the Mohawk position. It was agreed that the French would remain hidden behind the Indian battle formation. They loaded their arquebuses with four balls each, and the northern Indians arrayed themselves as planned. As the night waned, Montagnier's scouts crept toward the Mohawk camp. At first light, a scout emerged from the fort and looked around warily. A Montagnier sniper shot an arrow through the throat of the Mohawk scout before he could cry out, dropping him to the ground almost silently. The Mohawk emerged from the fort in close formation, wearing wooden armor that would deflect stone arrowheads. The two sides formed up on opposite ends of the clearing between the lake and the forest, about 200 yards apart. Champlain peered from behind the northern Indians and saw about 200 men advancing on his own 60 or so Indian allies. At their head were two chiefs, so indicated by their high feathers. It was Champlain's assignment to kill them. Champlain ordered the two other Frenchmen to creep through the forest to the Mohawk flank, but not to fire their arquebuses until he himself had fired. Then the northern Indians marched forward, closing ranks on the Mohawk, Champlain still hidden. When the gap between the two sides closed to perhaps fifty yards, the northern Indians parted ranks and Champlain strode forward. The polished steel of his half-armor and helmet glittering in the golden light of the morning sun, in Fisher's evocative words. He boldly marched forward alone, until he was perhaps twenty yards ahead of his allies and thirty yards short of the Mohawk line. The Mohawks were stunned into silence, staring at Champlain. Then a Mohawk leader raised his bow. Champlain raised his arquebuse and fired the four balls at the two chiefs, both of them and a third warrior went down, dead or dying. The far-outnumbered northern Indians let out a great shout and attacked the stunned Mohawks. They roused themselves and fought back, unleashing a cloud of arrows. But then the two French soldiers hidden in the forest fired into the Mohawk flank, killing a third chief and wounding others. The Mohawks were filled with fear, broke ranks, and fled into the forest, chased by Champlain's allies, The northern Indians killed or captured dozens of them. The battle was over. Altogether, the Mohawks lost about 50 warriors. Champlain and the other French were unscathed, and the northern Indians had suffered only 15 or so arrow wounds, which soon healed. Fisher says that Champlain may have been the first European to join a battle between two North American Indian armies. I wonder if that is correct. Long-standing listeners will recall that Pedro Menendez de Avilas, the founder of St. Augustine, played the various Florida tribes against each other during the 1560s. I find it hard to believe that Menendez and his Spaniards didn't find themselves fighting in the middle of an intertribal war. In Fisher's defense, though, I could not quickly find proof that they had, so maybe he's right. In the hours after the battle, the Indians gathered scalps and looted mohawk equipment. Champlain took a canoe and looked around. The Indians had described the stream that connected Lake Champlain to Lake George, which lay just around the Ticonderoga Promontory. You can see it clearly on Google Maps. He explored it for a couple of hours, but did not reach Lake George. On Champlain's return, still only three or four hours after the battle, the Indians, the French, and the dozen or so very unfortunate Mohawk prisoners got in their fast canoes and headed north. They did not want to be around if the Mohawks returned in force. That afternoon, they traveled north about 16 miles, and as night fell, camped in Vermont on the eastern shore of the lake. Now let's go to Fisher's harrowing account of the post-victory festivities, which is not for young children. So you might pause the podcast now if you have any in the car with you. I'll wait. But, um... But, um... But, um... Okay, quote, The victors turned to their captives and began a harangue in Champlain's word about the cruelty of the Iroquois toward their prisoners. They made it clear that the same fate was in store for them and ordered one of their captives to sing. Champlain remembered that it was a very sad song. Everyone knew what was coming. A fire was built and Champlain watched in horror as many warriors came forward and claimed the victor's role of torturer. He wrote, Each took a brand and burned this poor wretch a little at a time so as to make him suffer more torment. They stopped from time to time and threw water on his back. Then they tore out his nails and applied fire to the tips of his fingers and his penis. After that, they scalped him slowly poured very hot gum on the crown of his head, pierced his arms near the wrists, and with sticks they tried to pull out his sinews by brute force. When they could not get them out, they cut them off. This poor wretch uttered strange cries, and I felt pity to see him treated in this way. Still he bore it so firmly that sometimes one would have said that he felt scarcely any pain. The Indians invited Champlain to join in. He refused. We do not commit such cruelties, he responded. But if they wished me to shoot him with the arquebus, I would be willing to do so. They said no, that he would not feel pain. I went away from them as if angry to see them practice so much cruelty on his body. When they saw that I was not pleased, they called me back and told me to shoot him with my arquebus. I did so without his perceiving anything. And with one shot, caused him to escape all the tortures he would have suffered rather than see him brutally treated. Even that was not the end of it, Champlain wrote. When he was dead, they were not satisfied. They opened his body and threw his entrails into the lake. After that, they cut off his head, arms, and legs, which they scattered about. But they kept the scalp, which they flayed, as they did with the scalps of all the others whom they had killed in the attack. They committed another atrocity, which was to cut his heart in several pieces and to give it to his brother to eat and to other companions who were prisoners. I must call your attention, Colonel Saito, to Article 27 of the Geneva Convention. Back to me. It should be said that ritual torture of captives was frequent, but not universal, among the Indians of North America. We saw similar stories among the tribes of the Powhatan Confederacy, But according to Fisher, the tribes of Acadia did not do it. The evidence of archaeology, however, confirms that the Iroquois and their neighboring tribes, who were often enemies, had been torturing captives for at least hundreds of years. There would be one more battle with the Mohawks, this one in Canada, where the Richelieu River flows into the St. Lawrence about a year later in June 2010. Roughly as Don Juan Duanyate was founding Santa Fe at the opposite corner of the continent. Once more, Champlain would lead his allies to victory. In the two battles, the Mohawk lost between 150 and 250 warriors, roughly 10% of their entire fighting force at the time. Since the Mohawk were at war with tribes to their south and west, it would be an easy choice to avoid further fighting with the tribes to the north. There would be a peace in the St. Lawrence Valley for 20 years. Champlain had achieved his objective and ended a generations-long war. The peace would only fail after Champlain was gone and new leaders on all sides without the memories and wisdom gained in the battles at Ticonderoga and the Richelieu River rose to command. This is a good place to stop right now. After a break, we will return to Champlain in a few years when he wages another campaign in New York State, this time at the eastern edge of the Great Lakes, culminating in the siege of a remarkable Iroquoian fort at the site of today's Syracuse. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very motivating. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.